Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I'm Phil Wolf of the Nefers Initiative. This is the Herpeticulture Podcast, which is part of the Herpeticulture Network. Enjoy the show. It's recording. Does nice. It give me any sort of time. Yeah, okay. it just it just says that Justin is recording the call. There yeah. we go. Okay. All right. So let's June. give this a shot. All right. This is not our usual thing. Uh, we're using Skype instead of StreamYard, so I don't know if the audio levels are going to be any different or not, but we'll find out. Uh, this is episode 126 of the Herpeticulture Podcast. Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. I am Phil Wolf of the Nefers Initiative, and tonight we are joined by a very special guest, the one, the only, Mr. Alexander England. Hey, glad yeah. to be here. Thank you, guys. Man, I'm, I've been looking forward to this episode for, for a, since we originally talked about it, which has been a couple weeks now. Um, you've become sort of the guy as far as squams go and other awesome arboreal venomous. Uh, since me and Phil are both venomous guys, we figured this is a perfect time to talk more about venomous. So, Yeah. But we do have a few sponsors to talk about before we dive headfirst into this arboreal deliciousness. Correct. Which is, A, Steve Snake Shreya's Venom Hot Sauces. Check them out if you haven't already. They are delicious. And then, uh, Sean at MP Cages and Exotics. So if you need a rack, you need a cage, Sean's the guy to hit up. And uh, whatever you need, he's seems to be pretty able to do it so if you can dream it he can build it but we just uh survived hurricane elsa i don't know what you got from that bill but it was pretty rowdy last night here did it did you guys actually get like it over you or no yeah i think we got it we got a least part of it over us because it was it was really windy and there's yeah. been power out power outages all day and all kinds of crazy stuff so yeah we got um it basically we got lucky it just went completely around the tip of florida and i know the west coast and by billy and stuff they got hit pretty good but we got just feeder bands and it was just mm-hmm. really really poopy weather for like three or four days but other than that we're good so you know, it's just stupid humid yeah and it's crazy man because like you know, people talk about herping in the rain and like, you know, herping after a storm, herping before a storm, you know, barometric pressure changing, you know, low pressure system flows in and all this stuff. So Anna Marie and I went out last night and to hit the cane fields and the only living things we saw were cane toads and barn owls. So, I mean, obviously those owls are probably eating any snakes in the road and stuff like that, but it was, it was creepy because like there was nothing out there and they're probably all they probably knew the storm was coming, you know? Well, it's all been working in Chris's favor because his first night in West Texas, our buddy Chris Paintrab, uh, they found some Alterna and an Ornatus and pretty much all a lot of the stuff that we didn't see. So Yeah. Well, what was that one rat snake he posted? That was uh, Emery I. Oh, okay. It was really funky looking. Yeah. Good stuff, yeah. man. Herping out um, west, and you got to chase the rains and the pressure change. That's that's where it's at. Yeah, we were just out there 
what was it? Um, the beginning of last month. Yeah, for three, a four, week. Four weeks. And, yeah. I mean, we did pretty good. Did better some better than some other groups, but it was kind of hit or miss. We found a, some night snakes and some atrox and some other stuff. But uh, you know, we were look. I'm a big bear drat guy, so I was looking for bears and subox, and we didn't get any of that. So next time. Yeah, yeah. I've only been out there once, and uh, I went out there with my buddy Andy, and I mean, we had fun. We saw six, seven species, and I caught a subox. That was a cool one to see um, in the wild. You know, rat snakes. I'm with you, man. I'm all about the rat snakes. They're always good to see. There's so much stuff out there, man. It's 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 crazy. Yeah. You can. There's something for everyone. Uh, but so, how does one become the guy for arboreal venomous? How did you? How did you get to what you like? Get into just specifically sort of the stuff you have. I mean, I know you have some other colubrids and whatnot from from the looks of it. Uh, but where did where did the venomous thing start? Um, you know, I think the snake started from growing up. You know, camping and hiking with my dad. Like, I didn't do the the Disneyland and you know, Universal Studios. Those weren't my childhood fun trips. My childhood fun trips were going to Arkansas to hike the Butterfield Trail with my dad or going to Yellowstone to hike or, you know, part of the Appalachian Trail and all over Oklahoma. Um, you know, that was what I did and chasing snakes and lizards. And then, you know, as I grew up, I found some copperheads and I thought, boy, that's a pretty snake, you know, and took them home, started keeping them, was really just fascinated with vipers, the, you know, the head structure, the behavior, um, the way that they move. And then just, you know, from, from being a youngster and, you know, I told my mom when I was like six, I was like, I want a snake. And she said, well, you read books and learn and figure out what you need to do. Um, I read all these books that I checked out from the library and, you know, all the books are filled with pictures of eyelash vipers, crazy red bush vipers, you know, all the different bright, um, you know, ornately colored and patterned trims of Southeast Asia and those are just the things that I saw from day one and was just fascinated with the variety of colors and patterns and, um, you know, the, again, all the head structures. They're just so stinking pretty. And, uh, you know, the funny, the first arboreal venomous I ever got were um, Atheris Nietzschei, the sedge vipers, Great Lakes, bush vipers, whatever you want to call them. Um, was at a show in Tulsa and I had my license in, in Oklahoma at that time and I had you know the miscellaneous stuff I had some old world vipera macro vipera okay. uh, you know some bothrops and Cape Cobras just 
kind of the standard variety stuff. Um, but I always, you know, kind of focused on Vipers. Anyway, I'm at a show. Uh, random dude's like, hey, I got something you might like. And I'm like, all right. And so he goes and shows me in a styrofoam box under his table um, some little delis with some little dirty gray black snakes with scraggly looking scales. <laughs> I knew exactly what they were. That's awesome. I, I knew they were freaking Nietzschei. And I was like, oh, shit, I'll take them, you know. And I didn't I didn't know in detail or anything about them or about keeping them. And, you know, he's like, oh, they're smashing whole pinks. They're doing great. Now I know that they were tiny and hadn't even had their first shed yet. That's why they're still gray, because the Nietzschei, when they're born, are like a dirty gray, black looking you know, they haven't even dropped their, they don't turn green until they drop mm-hmm. that. Head. And so, you know, I didn't know anything, but I didn't care. I was like, I've never seen these before in my life. And I paid him 300 for the pair. And, nice. you know, they wouldn't eat a darn thing. And I didn't have anyone to teach me about anything. You know, I didn't know anyone keeping arboreal venomous, the venomous community in Oklahoma has always been very uh, minimal at best. It's a little better now, but still, it, it's very minimal. Um, you know, so I looked at books and I did some reading about, you know, things they ate. Um, and I looked at some old Viper Keeper videos because he had some old videos a long time ago with Sedge Vipers when he mm-hmm. first um, And uh, I took notes from those things. And I set up like a little uh, tank with some house geckos and, uh, you know, used bits of tail as needed and then used the lizards and started out assisting them, you know, because I didn't didn't know about tease feeding or any of those things, you know, Um, but I knew that I wasn't going to let them uh, not thrive, you know. So I assisted for about six months. The male never took off, you know, he kind of just existed and eventually rolled. But the female took off at about six months. And I had her about five years and then ended up giving her to a friend. And he had her about another three years. And then he had like some kind of AC catastrophe and lost a bunch of really cool. Yeah. But that was that was my first intro to Etheris, and I was hooked, and I loved them. And then I had some Clarecus that I ended up getting as they were solid yellow little neonates, and I had them. And uh, I think the first trims I ever had were some badass red-eyed popes, you know, and you don't really even see them around anymore. They're not very common. And, um, you know, th- this was back when I... I got them for like $45, $50 a piece. Oh, yeah. The, the, the good old days, right? Yeah. And, you know, and then I, I, uh, I, I started coming to Texas in like 2007, vending shows, and was doing business with, you know, some of the good companies that were around back then. And I was getting badass perps, dirt cheap, and trim trigs, you know, dirt cheap and 
I just have always been hooked by the tree snakes. You know, the I like the challenge. I like I like the attention to detail. You know, um, it's rewarding to get these tiny little babies that are four inches long and as thick as a spaghetti noodle. Yeah. And then stress yourself to death and work your butt off until they're big and stable and growing and thriving. And my heart has always been with the etheris because of the keeled scales, the head structure, the, uh, you know, polymorphism, all those things have been so cool. But Squamagera, they weren't around, you know, at least I wasn't online and in the forums back then. So I didn't see people like Derek Morgan, you know, and Jim Campbell back in the day, killing it with them and cranking them out. I didn't know mm-hmm. about people. And then, you know, so back in those days, I just cruised Kingsnake every day. You know, it was like the the spot and I would go and look at Kingsnake and I never, ever saw him. And then in 2015, um, the first shipment that I had really ever seen came in through underground and i bought a shitload and i just kept buying them every year so i actually not to not to interrupt you but i was actually going to ask you so on that underground shipment in 2015 did you happen to get any black squams out of that yeah that's where my original black and white male that produces all these white ones came it came in on that that was the first black i ever bought and I still have him to this day. And he's fathered like probably 12 litters. And he's produced all the crazy high white squams. And, you know, now now his kids are making babies, you know. And uh, I still have him. I still have an original blue and black who's fathered three or She's, you know, put out three generations now. Um yeah, I still have some animals from that very first group. And so it, it's funny, man. I opened that crate and yeah. had to sort through all those animals. And if it's the same black snake I'm thinking of, that I actually went up got I, I got that snake and we named yeah. him Dar- we named him Darth Vader. And yeah. I remember Underground had I guess they over they oversold the blacks because there's only like five of them in that whole shipment. Yeah. And they asked me like, "Hey man, we oversold. You know, can we can we sell that snake?" And I said, "Sure, yeah, we got more coming in. Don't worry about it." And that was it. And we never saw him ever again. So I'm happy that you. <laughs> if it's the snake I'm thinking of, I'm really happy that you have that snake. Yeah, because that, that's great to know that. He's tough, man. He has been whooped. Like squams are such mean snakes to each other. They are vicious. And, like, he has been chomped out, like, three different times by girls. And, like, you know, they'll bite each other occasionally, and, and it's not so bad. But one of the times he got, I mean, he got lit up, and he looked like a half-dead piece of junk for about two months. And I, I wasn't sure he was going to pull through. And he did. There's about an inch of his neck that's, like, fused straight. But he's fine, and he still has put out four letters since that bite. And, you know, they are just tough, nasty little snakes. But, man, I love them. They're so awesome. That's great, man. That's great. It's awesome. So what's the, as far as the squams themselves over other species, 
what's the like what's the the focus on the squams? Is it just the the polymorphism in general that sort of draws so, you to them over the other stuff? I like I like that before it was like you know well you don't know what you're gonna get you don't know what colors they're gonna be yeah. you don't know any of these things and it's like shooting in the dark every time and it's not like that anymore. I don't think for me, I've bred just about every color to itself and just and bred just about every color to a black. And um, I, I'm pretty comfortable and confident in how my litters come out. You know, I can pretty well spot on say I breed a black to say a red. I'm going to get two blacks that are born legit black. I'm going to get a couple that are funky and will turn black. And then I'll get a couple mixtures of odd colors that favor the other parent. And it's consistent. And, uh, you know, so and and so I, I can look at my babies and pretty comfortably say this baby is going to mature and look like this. I've had mm-hmm. a few oddballs here and there that like completely go the other direction that I'm like, well, I sure shit didn't see that coming. I wouldn't have sold it if I did. Um, (laughs) But typically, you know, I can say like, all right, these came from ex adults that came from ex grandparents. So this baby has these traits and he's going to favor the mom. He's going to favor the dad. And I've noticed also that uh, I see grandparent colors coming through. I'll breed a, a couple, and the babies don't resemble either parent, but they are spot on with grandparents. And then I've had a couple that, you know, within the polymorphism and how crazy and chaotic that is, essentially, I have them come out carbon copies of their parents. And to me, that's really interesting that with all the variability, they'll still be a perfect clone of their parent. Mm-hmm. So there's like some systems in there that, um, you know, like uh, essentially like a, a set model. You know, there's a couple models that come out through this pattern and then there's the oddballs. Um, but it but there's consistency in it, you know, and I like figuring that out. And um I kind of, I feel like I'm figuring that out with the black tigers. Um, the Europeans have been cranking out black tigers for a long time. Christian Moisander is a good buddy of mine, and he's, you know, the one who started the black tiger gene and was the first to produce it and reproduce it. And, um, you know, it hadn't been done here in the States until a few years ago. A buddy of mine got a couple random imports, bred them, and two black tigers dropped out and uh you know he raised them for a little while and then he got out of snakes so i bought that group from him i bought the adults and all the offspring i raised up the offspring and while raising the offspring um, i compared and looked at you know i studied the tigers the markings they have i studied pictures of the markings of tigers in europe and I kind of noticed all these little similarities on them 
you know, uh, on the actual tigers and then siblings. And so I, you know, was looking at mine. I'm like, okay, that I believe is essentially a, a marker for a het, you know, because the black tiger gene seems like it's a, a simple recessive. You breed a visual to a non-tiger normal, you come out with 100% hets. And a certain portion of those hets, a certain portion out of that litter, all have visual markers for the gene to produce tigers. And so I, 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 I stared at these snakes for a couple of years until they were ready. And then I bred them this last year. And I got visual tigers. I got what I think are visual hets. And I got, you know, animals that don't show any signs. But I would bet you a fat stack of money they produce tigers. And, uh, you know, the next next year is going to be another year producing visual tigers that will continue to kind of prove out what I'm saying. And I, I've spent a lot of time talking to Christian late at night, you know, because he's over in, I want to say, Switzerland. I cannot remember, but my memory is terrible, so it's not a personal thing. Um, you know, and, and uh, he agrees and he's like, you know, I never noticed any of that. And then, you know, but I think it's, I think you're spot on. And so I, I like that. I like figuring this shit out. I like figuring out these snakes that are polymorphic and everyone before put up their hands like, well, I don't know. It's just whatever. There's no talent. I disagree. I think you can absolutely tell. I think you can actually absolutely figure it out and make claims as to what these genes are and what they do. And, uh, you know, that's, so, that's what I'm trying to do. So was the original tiger, that was like a, the German was an import and they bred it in Europe and it just, they, they brought in a tiger or was it something that like that dropped from a line in like Germany or whatever? So he said that the originals came out of just some random imports that he bred together. Um, I think there might've been some black, like a black animal to another one. And then boom, the, a couple black tigers fell out. And so then he kept back that litter and bred everything. And it proved to be a reproducible thing. And uh, that's how it started. It was just kind of a fate type thing. Um, a few years ago, uh, a chick in Florida got in an import from underground. And it was a green animal. And it dropped three tigers. And she kept one, I got one, and my buddy David got one. She lost hers, I lost mine. I had a virus in 2016 that came from another snake, killed a bunch of shit, you know. And it always, that when those things happen, they always lose, you always lose the nicest snakes you have. That's how it works. Of course, na naturally. Yeah, yeah. And, with, and, and the carrier... I still have, and has fathered like six, or mothered, you know, dropped like six litters. But, you know, I lost the tiger, of course. Anyway, my buddy David, he kept his tiger. It did well. Now I have that animal. I've had that animal about three years going on, and I've bred it. And so it mirrors the European high black, what I call European tiger or traditional tiger, and that's the high black with faint, you know, little bands. And then my tigers, 
um, are different. They have a lower amount of black, but I've also seen uh, an animal that is very similar to my tigers fall out of a Europe tiger um, litter also. So it seems like it's a variation within that gene. Mm-hmm. You know, the gene is kind of its own thing, but then there's also a couple differences within that gene. And so how I'm trying to figure that out further is breed one of my tiger animals to the more traditional to see if it spits out all normals, then I'll know that it's two different lines. If it spits out tigers, then I'll know that they are compatible, same gene, and with the variation in the gene. Mm-hmm. From the first time I bred these dang snakes, I'm trying to do it in an educated way, you know, in a controlled way. And, uh, you know, so that's what I try to do every time. Um, is the is the tiger itself like the ones I always remember like like when I think of like tiger squam or like black tiger squam, I think of essentially a, a lime colored animal like a base color lime or yellow or even like a light green with the black tiger stripes on top. Is it ever like reversed where the base color is darker? So with the like traditional tigers, it's essentially like a solid black. And it has green or white bands. And they're like, they're real symmetrical, real crisp. And they're typically, the, the, the bands are maybe three scales wide at most. Sometimes they're only one scale wide. Sometimes they're two, you know, occasionally three. But the snake is predominantly black. It just has these super crisp, badass green and black uh, bands. And so... My tigers are kind of an opposite. They're more like a base color of a weird neon green with black markings. And the black markings uh, on some of them are kind of symmetrical and a few scales wide, like a a symmetrical black band um, that's maybe three scales wide. And then some of them are kind of more aberrant and and there's no real rhyme or reason or pattern. It's just uh, gnarly black markings all over the lime, kind of neon base green snake. Super cool. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, what about the like the whites? Do, do you notice the any any sort of pattern as far as an inheritance with those? So that's another thing I'm trying to figure out. So <clears throat> I bred that that original black male that came from underground and he is a standard black. He's got a solid white belly and a lot of white blushing that kind of goes up his sides. His face is predominantly white, Mm -hmm. um, white on his tail. I originally uh, bred him to a red female, like, I mean, a super just like brick glowing red female. And there was a funky baby that was born like this lavender purple white. There was a black baby that was probably 60% black, 40% white. And then there were red and orange, you know, like typical red orange babies. So I kept back the black, I kept back the lavender, and I kept back one of the reds. 
um, that red one matured and it turned crazy orange and then it turned like silver and white and I haven't really posted much but I've never seen a snake go from orange like the most bright burnt orange color that glue that glows to like now it's like a a a silver Mm. burgundy it's funky um but then so I kept that white one and it matured out and at every shed it got more white. A lot of times you'll see oddball squam babies born funky white, but they turn yellow. They turn kind of a faint green. They um, they don't stay they white. sort of normalize. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's a weird like translucent baby, but it turns to a, a pretty basic color. So these get more white with age. They go reverse. And, uh, you know, now... She is three and a half years old, and she's probably, I don't know, 60% of funky white and like 40% a silver, light silvery gray. And um, the male that was in that litter is a weird silvery black and then a nice crisp white, you know, large portion of his body and then that so that male that produced those has also produced more white animals he's produced white when he when i put him to a green and a purple he produced white with other black females um he produced he fathered a litter with that traditional european tiger and three out of the six babies um favor the white animals also and so to me producing the same kind of babies with multiple different females seems like a trait that he has it seems like an actual possible legit you know other trait that pops up because Mm -hmm. if it if it didn't pop up with so many different animals in multiple litters it would have just been like that one litter had those two weird oddball snakes that turned white. Yeah. And it's not like that. You know, um, I sent Jim Campbell a couple animals out of that initial first litter, and uh, his are doing the same thing. His orange female is like a weird, splotchy, silver and white kind of thing. And uh, so I, I bred another high white animal back to the original high white female and both those snakes that I put together. Um, I mean, they are like the most picture perfect, um, high white, weird silver. And I think she's gravid. I, you know, even as being successful as I have, I still hate saying, Oh yeah, it's a guarantee. And I'm always still second guessing everything. But they locked up about three months ago and she's growing, you know, um, typically she would have they would have started basking around two months and she's not basking yet, but she's still growing. So, you know, the one thing, you know, in working with animals is there's no guaranteed rule that you can say goes across the board. So just because she's not basking yet, I'm not saying she's not gravid, but if she is gravid and she spits out good viable offspring, two whites together should produce essentially an all white litter. If it is a genetic trait, if it is a genetic trait, then that will be a whole new thing that, you know, I 
um, accidentally started, but then, you know, it was an accident to get it the first time. I didn't know it was going to happen, but now I've done it. You know, I've got It'd be pretty, pretty freaking awesome to prove it out. Yeah, and if I put it back together and it proves out a thing, then that'll be pretty badass in my opinion. Yeah, that, that would be awesome. We'll see. Time will tell. In about three to four months, we'll know. I've just I've always considered squams to be like the Amazon trevos of the venomous world. Like they get imported in huge numbers. They come in a million different colors. There's done you know up until I guess now they always sort of got written off as like oh you never know what you're gonna get baby wise like you're gonna get all these different colors just like Amazon's. Yeah. And uh, it's just funny how how similar they are. Yeah, I think that's you know all my favorite snakes are pretty much polymorphic. You know like. The uh, bush vipers, the eyelash vipers, you know, I love Amazons. I kept a bunch when I was younger. I like snakes that are variable like that. Don't get me wrong. I love breeding two similar colored snakes and getting a litter of all the same thing. Like that's cool. Any snakes that you breed and help create life and are successful with is awesome and is special. But I like the variability. I like not knowing what's going to hatch, you know, that's why with my colubrids, I, I, I breed and like all the oddball morph colubrids because you don't really know what's going to hatch out. And I dig mm -hmm. that, the variability, you know, people laugh and talk about how squams are so easy and they're such basic common snakes, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, so many, like you said, come in every year, but if they're so stinking easy, why is there only like five people that consistently breed them? Why, yeah. why out of the 5,000 that have been imported over the last five years, you know, why is it only a handful of us still have animals from 15, you know, when they first came in and are breeding them? Where's all these ones that come in every year going, you know? But I, I have noticed more people having successful being successful with them you know and people ask like you're telling everyone to what to do too much to where they're breeding them it's like well i want people to be successful and i want people to do well and i want people to see the joy and the fun of arboreal vipers before everyone wrote them off as being a nightmare they sucked and they all die and and no one wanted to jack with them except, you know, select oddball people. Uh, yeah. But now, now more people are successful with them. I had a guy shoot me pictures this morning of babies. He got some adults from me last year. And, you know, he followed directions and setting them up. And he got babies. And there's, a, you know, a bunch of other people that, you know, have been successful like that. And I like that. I like seeing other people light up with the fun and excitement and the joy of, you know, I just helped create these badass little snakes. Hell yeah. And then they go nuts about them, you know? Yeah, man. That's and they're also why we do giving it. people, yeah, giving people the advantage of animals that aren't, you know, they don't need to be treated. They don't need to, you know, you don't have to pump them full of meds and then risk people getting bit. And, you know, they're, they're, all, they're start, just like chondros, they're starting off on a much better foot. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's funny. There was a, a guy local to me who that that 2015 shipment we got at Underground. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, he got a, a handful of snakes, not even knowing like what the gender ratio was. And he held on to them. And I think he had one or two clutches a couple years ago. And then he just kind of like, he was just keeping them because he liked them. And he wound up selling them to Josiah from Underground. And he just got two litters last week. So, yeah. yeah. And it was a, a green to green and a yellow to yellow. And both, both clutches came out 50-50 yellow and green. And mm-hmm. then uh, in one of them, I, I just saw the babies yesterday. One of the babies from the green clutch is really, really dark, dark green. And I, obviously, they haven't had their first shed yet. But uh, I, I'm really eager to see what that one animal turns into because, I mean, who knows? Uh, when the blacks are born, are they born black or are they like a, like a gray color and they evolve into the black? So what I have noticed, um, if you... If there's no black in the adults, like like if, if neither of the parents are black and you get like funky gray babies, everyone gets excited about gray babies, but gray just turns blue or it just turns like a dark green. Now, if there's a black in the mix, um, I have seen babies born legitimate, like they'll have a black head and then the body might be kind of like an olive color. If it's got a black head, I'm like, all right, it's black for sure. It's just a pattern I've seen. You know, each of my, excuse me, each of my black males kind of has a pattern for how his babies start out and change. And, you know, there's babies that are born just about straight up black. And, you you know, you obviously know. And then there's like the oddballs that have a black head and like a drab green body. And people are like, oh, I don't know. It kind of looks green. I'm telling them, I'm like, yeah, uh, I'll tell you that one. It's black, blah, blah. And they're like, are you sure it's green? I'm like, just freaking trust me. I've seen a couple of these babies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I promise you. You know, and then they turn black. And then I have learned that the uglier the baby the it is or the more weird and random one, those are the ones I'm keeping. You know, my buddy Tommy, he had – a litter a couple years ago um it was like it was like his second litter that he produced and the litter like had four or five just smoking fire engine red babies and then it had a bunch of like dirty greenish brown with some bands and i was like listen sell all those red pieces of junk keep those ones and he's like what are you serious i'm like listen bro (laughs) just trust me man the reds and orange get them all day long, and they're beautiful snakes, and they're gonna grow up and be smoking reds. Those weird ones that are kind of ugly right now, those are where it's at, bro. Those are what you need to keep. And those ones grew up to be weird neon green, purple banded, you know, gray green, almost black with neon green bands. I'm like, those are the ones you always hold back and keep the funky, ugly stuff. Because that's the stuff that does, does that's what does the really cool things and through the change. Yeah. You, know, you, get, you get a red baby, an orange baby, like, that's awesome. It's going to just continue to be brighter. And everyone loves a red and orange. But I like the weird stuff. I like the funky stuff that you look at it and you're like, what the hell is that thing? You know, that's, that's what interests me. Um, so 
yeah. Anyway, back to it. With greens and yellows, you pair green and yellow or any kind of mix of those, your babies are going to be green and yellow. They might start off, you know, you might get a bunch of neon solid yellow babies, but nine out of ten times they turn green or they get some green saddles and blotches. I've noticed some colors are dominant. You know, green is obviously dominant. Um, yellow is a pretty dominant snake. But a solid yellow is a rarity. You'll get a lot of babies born solid yellow, but they don't stay solid yellow. They turn orange. They turn red. They turn green. A solid yellow adult is something exciting and unique. Um, it's not as common. Um, but those babies that are odd and gray or like a silvery blue, they typically turn like a like a kind of a sky powder blue or a, a kind of like a aqua type greenish blue. But you never know. I have, like I said, noticed that grandparent colors are important. So, you know, you get some import adults, you don't know what color their yeah. parents are. You know, there's there's no telling what mom and dad actually looked like. So you could breed them together and, you know, get some wild, funky things come out of that. And you just have to wait and see. Super cool, man. Super cool. Yeah, and I mean, just the sheer number of babies you have to produce and look at and then hold on to to see sort of how they change. Like, I mean, how many squams are you talking about? Like, with this whole learning all of this, how many squams do you think it's taken like, uh, producing and, and buying and sort of tinkering with over the years? So, I think in 2015, I think I bought maybe 30 or 40 the first year and I kept. Like, um, I kept like five out of that group. And then the next year, you know, I bought, uh, you know, 30 or 40. No, I think in 16, I bought like probably 50 or 60. And I kept like five out of that group. And uh, I got, got a big old group. And like most of them were just sick as shit when I got them. And most of them mm -hmm. it super sucked. Um, but I, I would just buy as many as possible every year and, you know, buy 10, keep one out of that 10, you know, buy 20, keep two out of that, you know, or, or buy a group of 10 just to keep the two black animals out of the group. And, um, I think I have, I don't honestly know. I probably have. 40 maybe 40 or 50 adults now and then i have probably 20 adults that i have produced and raised up and started breeding and maybe like 30 initial adults from over the years and then like 20 adults that i've kept back and produced and then I have, you know, I have probably 20 yearlings I've kept back. And then this year, so far, I've produced nine litters this year. And I have a couple more gravid that should go. So I should get at least for sure 10 litters this year, but maybe 11 or 12. I don't know. Um, and I've, I've kept, and that's, that's just squams? Yeah, just squams. Dude, that's crazy awesome. 
Uh, I've kept back three whole litters this year because they had visual tigers, tiger animals. So I'm not getting rid of any tiger genetic stuff um, until probably 23, like 2023. I'll probably start mm-hmm. selling tigers. But I did the same thing with blacks. I started collecting every black I could. Everyone that came in, I would buy up. And, you know, all... All the captive born and bred blacks in the country, except maybe like five, I produced. And so I waited till I had about 20 blacks just for my own personal use. And then I started selling some. And I think I've sold 10 or 15. Yeah, I probably sold like 15 or so. And so I'll do the same thing, you know, with the whites. I haven't sold any high whites. I've sold one white litter mate. And uh, but other than that, I haven't sold any pure any of the legit high white animals, and I I won't until I have, you know, at least ten or fifteen of those. I haven't sold any tigers. I'm not going to sell any tigers until I have you know fifteen or twenty of those by myself. Then I'll have enough to feel comfortable in selling a handful here and there. You know, it's not that I don't want to sell them. I just don't want anyone to have them. I just want to have them all. <laughs> I like them. I've worked my butt off breeding just these snakes and, you know, specifically trying to figure it out. Once I have a number that I'm comfortable with and I got a whole I got a whole wall of just tigers that I made, then I'll sell some, you know, just like the blacks. I got stacks of cages that are all just different black animals that I produced and made and had and, you know, so I'll sell them here and there and, there's no point in working your butt off and getting something figured out and then selling the project. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You sell yourself short. Hey, I did all this work and figured this out. Go ahead and have fun and, you know, keep it going. Let me know how you do. Like, that doesn't make sense. You know, anyone, any of these people, like these crazy chondro people or any of the crazy <laughs> constrictor people, you know, the people that we look at and we're like, that gum they really figured it out and they really are doing the most and they're the boss of x species it's because they bought all they could they bred all they could they hoarded all they could until they figured it out and then they started letting them out to the public and so you know that's what i'm doing so i've been very fortunate to be friends with a lot of the real badass OG dudes like Jim Campbell, Derek Morgan, Christian Moisander, you know, these people that are like the original kings of it. And, you know, they let me pick their brain and learn from them years ago. And so I'm trying to do it, you know, like when you think of tiger eyelash vipers, you think of Jim Campbell. He's been doing it since the freaking 70s. And, you know, it's like the godfather of that. I'm just trying to work my butt off and do that with the squams. You know, the same thing my buddy Rhett's doing. Tommy's working towards it. You know, uh, Rhett down in Florida has been killing it with squams for years. And and there's other people that have been doing it, you know. And um, that's what I just want to do. I'm just trying to really figure them out and be able to leave real information and real years and years of consistent 
quality captive animals and bloodlines. So, you know, in 20 years, people can be like, oh, man, that was England line of whatever the heck, Swamajira, you know, that's, that's what I want. That's, that's the kind of stuff I've looked at, looked up to since I was a kid. And, uh, you know, I don't know how, but I've gotten to where I'm doing that. And I don't know how, but people think I'm somebody and something. And it's, uh, well, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to speak for Justin, but I think you're there, bud. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think you're. I think you're freaking there, man. It's I, awesome. Well, you did. You did what? What it seems like a lot of people struggle to do, which is you have a goal and you have sort of a vision and you notice something and you stick with it. You pursue it for longer than you know four or five years, and you you know you 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 see what's going on, and instead of saying you know hey I got all these things selling for a bajillion dollars and then you know kind of just move on, like you you notice it, you see it you're pursuing it and i think that's that's sort of what makes the difference trying to you know um i try to i try to be helpful and keep it going and be approachable and lend uh help when i can because there's a lot of people that don't do that and there's a lot of people that do and uh you know we're all we all keep snakes in boxes that's right. the bottom line. Some of us do it better than others. Some of us do it for different reasons. But, you know, why not try to help each other and work together and collectively grow and learn and give these animals the best life they can and provide the best quality animal you can for future keepers, you know, so they can keep going. Mm-hmm. 100%. 100%. So I'm especially curious about, and we talked about it kind of before earlier today, before we, you know, started this. But uh, I've been fairly vocal about my stance on squams as a first venomous, and I don't know exactly. I think me and Phil have talked about it, but what's your what's your thoughts on on squams or really any atheris as as a first venomous? Because in my opinion, it seems kind of foolish because you don't have, you know, we don't. There is no anti venom for those things. Um, doctors aren't going to know what the hell to do you know anybody who's listening to the show knows like this is the same spiel i have for you know a lot of stuff but it just seems like swams in particular seem to be very popular as a first venomous so i can see both sides of the coin um so if someone so I, I, I recently sold a girl, a squamajira, as her first venomous. She had been talking to me and asking me questions about them for, man, I don't know, probably at least six months, asking me all sorts of questions, doing the most, reading, studying, learning everything she could. Mm-hmm. And I sent her... A well-started, long-term captive, you know, a couple-month captive import juvenile. So it's past the tricky stage where, you know, you would get a stuck shed and have to go hands-on. It's past the tricky small stage where you would have to essentially tease feed with, you know, and get in closer proximity of the animal. Um, 
so those things are out of the way and that's good. Um, the animal essentially rides a hook really well. You know, mostly our boreal vipers ride hooks pretty well. Occasionally you'll get an oddball runner that just is is a spaghetti noodle when you touch it with a hook and it just falls on the ground and runs and they're a pain in the butt, you know, but so a good thing with them is they all ride a hook pretty well. Um, The squams and most of don't need a lot of humidity. So you're not constantly opening the enclosure to mist them, you know, and reaching your hand in there with a spray bottle or using a spray nozzle. So I think that's a good thing. Um, They're all pretty voracious feeders. So that's a good thing. On the other side, most of your squams are meaner than crap little snakes. You know, they have a bad attitude. So if you get within range, they will not hesitate to bite you. Um, their venom, I think their venom varies uh, depending on locality, which, I mean, literally almost every venomous snake does that. Right. You know, so why wouldn't a theris do that? I've heard of envenomations that they get some swelling for a day and then nothing. And then I personally was bitten by a squam in 2016. And it nearly killed me, you know, it whooped my ass. And, uh, you know, so I think that the venom varies depending on where they were collected, originate from, et cetera, has different properties. And everyone is affected differently. Um, Mm -hmm. I do know from personal experience that Samir, um, African polyvalent that covers Echis, treats atheris bites and neutralizes a squamagera bite very well. Um, Spencer Green will tell you from his experience in treating atheris bites that the Samir African polyvalent uh, works well. And See, that's interesting because I've heard that it 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 works okay. Yeah, I haven't. I mean, I, mean, I had, there's really not that many bite reports out there that that can tell you whether you know for sure right. it's it's effective across the board or not. Yeah. So. I've been bitten by squams two times. Uh, I've been working with squams for going on six years, and I've been bitten twice. The first time, I did not get any antivenom. They actually gave me the incorrect antivenom, and uh, um, the bite was bad and kicked my butt, and I had to have uh, fibrinogen transfusions. Um, because the venom just destroyed my blood quality to where mm-hmm. my blood wouldn't clot, my blood pressure was minimal, my heart was trying to stop when I would go to sleep. It was a shitty deal. Um, wow. Then the time that I, the other time I was bitten by a squam was a younger animal and it latched onto my finger like a bulldog and I literally had to flick him off my finger um and he uh you know lit my lit me up but it only did uh tissue damage actually on the tip of my finger there was no systemic issues my blood pressure was good there was no bleeding clotting issues um i had my own antivenom on hand and you know uh I, I wrote it out about five hours monitoring my blood pressure. And I, I'm not sell, telling anyone to not go get treatment. If you get bitten, 
you know, I was monitoring myself, my heart. I was in communication with people and I had my own antivenom on hand. So after about five hours, the, the bite was progressing at the site. And I was like, all right, shit, I'm fine, but I don't want to potentially lose uh, a part of my finger. I'm already short. I don't want to, you know, lose anything else. So I went in and said, you guys treat me with this I have right here. Treat me per my specifications. We can consult these people and you give me X amount, you know, these three vials and it will neutralize the bite and we will go from there. They gave me three vials. It immediately neutralized the venom, um, stopped the spread, um, stopped the pain. I mean, everything was golden. And I went in the hospital at like 11 o'clock at night, and I left at 10 o'clock the next morning. And, and that was Samar that they gave you? Yeah. It was nice. Samar that I will say expired in 1994. <laughs> Everyone freaks out about expiration date on antivenom. If it is stored correctly and taken care of correctly, it does not go bad. This wow. stuff was from 1994. That was the expiration was 94. And the hospital used it without thinking twice. Without I was say, did you have any pushback from them as far as bringing that in and saying, hey, here's what you need to do? No, I, I told him, I was like, listen, here's the stuff. This is what happened. I am fine. I've been monitoring everything. I'm not going to die. This is a save my finger type situation. If you will treat per my specifications with this antivenom that I have right here, I will stay and we can boogie and we'll, you know, let's make this happen. If not, I'll go home and chill on the couch and I'll be fine. I'm not going to die. It's up to you. What do you want to do? And they were like, yeah, we will treat you. Let's get started right away. And wow. they did everything that I asked and said. And, uh, you know, like I said, I was out 10 o'clock the next morning and was fine. No issues. I mean, I had a black rotten spot on my finger. Um, but since then, you know, everything's fine. No issues. And my bill was only $3,000, I will tell you. Wow. That's awesome. Because, like, by me, I've had – and I've not been bitten to that extreme, but – I've had several buddies that literally had to like shake the doctor physically and say, put this in me. I will die as they're, you know, warming up the crow fab for, you know, a, a South American species. So yeah. it, it's very interesting, the different doctor care from, you know, where you are, where I am or wherever else. It's amazing. I think a lot of it is how you present the situation to them. How right. you carry yourself, you know, if you walk in like, oh, shit, I just got bitten by this crazy exotic snake. Don't let me die. Uh, and then you try to tell them something They're, you know, they're not going to know what the hell's going on. And, you know, uh, if you think about it to a point, you run the show in the hospital. You know, they they have things that they're going to do that they're required to do that they're supposed to do and have to do to keep you alive. But like a lot of these things, like if you tell them do this, don't do this, they can or won't. You know, people get mm -hmm. screwed up. And that's what you see with fasciotomies is people, you know, the hospital's like, oh, you have to do this or you're going to die. But you can tell them, no, <laughs> fuck off. You're not doing that, you know. Uh, but And so I think a lot of times 
it sucks, but a lot of these um, people that have these crazy venomous snakes, I could, I could, I'm not going to name people, but you know, there's a handful of people that have gotten bitten and then they're like calling other people like, what do I do? Am I going to die? And it's like, how the hell do you not know what's going to happen or how to deal with this situation with this snake that you have? Right. <laughs> right. I don't, right. That, that, I, it blows me away. And, you know, so if, if you're going to have these animals, you have to know what you're doing. You have to know what will happen if you get bitten. You have to have a plan in place. You have to have people to call. And, you know, you have to keep calm and and do what you need to do. And, uh, and yeah, so anyway, we're super way off topic. But <laughs> Samar, Samar African Polyvalent does treat Scarmagera. It's, you know, not specifically for them. But uh, if it's a matter of trying not to die. Yeah, uh, it's better than nothing. Absolutely. It, <laughs> yeah way back roundabout, you know um so squams as a first snake there's pros and cons if it's an established animal they eat really well they ride a hook pretty well they're pretty darn hardy they're an easy snake to keep and be alive the cons are they're meaner than shit they will bite you you know an anti-venom readily available is you know uh not really a thing and, uh, you know, so there, there, it's so, so, you know, it, if, if you want to get into vipers, you know, the standard copperhead is a good snake, but, you know, if you want to learn arboreal vipers, copperhead doesn't really fit that bill, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, a white lip is a good one. You know, you get whacked by a white lip, worst case scenario. You could potentially lose a finger, but you probably are not going to die. You know, I sold a guy some Insularis for his first snake recently, and they're babies and they're small, you know, and so he can learn as they grow. Um, if he makes a mistake while they're small, he's not going to die. You likely won't lose a finger. A little baby will just swell up and hurt your finger you know ruin your weekend um i've noticed when they're tiny fragile babies you know you're pretty safe uh and i use the term safe loosely you know um but once they get to about the size to where they're smashing whole pinks that's the hurt you size because the baby that chomped my finger um was probably about nine inches long and smashing whole pinks and was mm-hmm. probably three-ish months old. And, and was that the second bite? Yeah, that was that was the okay. one that, uh, that that was on the finger and was no good. Or it was uh, you know just the finger um, necrosis issue, not the internal. Mm-hmm. The one that bit me and caused so much internal damage did nothing to the skin. There was no necrosis. Like bruising was gone by day two. I mean, it did nothing to external area. It did immense amount of damage internally, made me lose 15 pounds in a week. I mean, kicked my butt, but you couldn't even tell anything had happened to my finger. And do you, the other one was the opposite. Do you feel like that first one was 
maybe like uh, you know intravenous opposed to something sub Q that you know yeah definitely a possibility you know the animal that bit me the first time was a juvenile that was he was probably <coughs> excuse me probably about 16 inches long and um, was a fresh import and caught me with one fang only yeah and, and it only even caught one fang it wasn't even two fangs full latch on it was just like quick one fang um but it was further up my finger um kind of closer to my actual hand whereas the other one was right at the tip of my finger kind of in the meat so the other one was likely just straight into some meat and tissue and the other one was Mm -hmm. potentially where there was more vascular uh, or more veins cruising around in there you know, could have been a thing like that. Definitely a possibility. It's crazy, man. I'm glad it panned out for the better, you know? <laughs> you know, um, people people take these venomous snakes for granted. All these snakes that we have can move a thousand times quicker than we could ever think about moving. And we... <coughs> Excuse me. We see a snake, you know, throw some lazy strikes here and there. And so people are like, oh, they're not bad. They're laid back. They're, they're, they're not too fast. But it's completely untrue. <coughs> Excuse me. How difficult was it to get that, that antivenom? <coughs> Pardon me. Um, not too bad. I... I I was lucky and know some good people. And so I, that's how I got it. <coughs> Sorry, I was sick last week from my two-year-old. <laughs> I'm still, um, he gets a little cold and then I get it. And I sound like I'm dying from emphysema for two weeks. And uh, so I got the leftover raggedy cough from talking and stuff. So I apologize for that. <coughs> <laughs> yeah, they leave you with it, and then they're good after like two days. They're back to normal. <laughs> 100%. I get it, and I'm I'm like on death's bed for a while. But totally know the feeling, man. Totally know the feeling. I don't know. I just I think that all the points you made about squams being good for the first one or squams being bad for the first one, I feel like all the points you made were fantastic, man. And I think the problem is that nobody considers those points. You know, they see a small snake that's relatively inexpensive. It doesn't get too big. Rumor has it the venom isn't that bad, quote unquote. And like that's, I feel like that's the allure of it. But they've never had one chase them across the table, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, if you think about it, so the snakes that they're treating their bite with are echis. Saw scale vipers, saw scale vipers like literally kill the most people on the planet yearly, tied with like Deboya. And you know, they if they're killing like 50,000 people a year because they're badass little snakes, you know, part of it is because in those third world countries, medical, um, medical treatment isn't super available and it isn't super the best. Um, 
But so that's a badass little snake that kills a shitload of people. And if they're using that venom to treat a squam bite, I don't know how the hell that equals a not mild snake in someone's mind. Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. Those, those don't line up as like, ah, oh, it's not bad. You know, they're treating it with the snake that it like kills the most people every year. So obviously it's kind of a badass little snake. But people, like you said, write them off because they're little. You, well, know? you also notice the trend in nature where the smaller they are, the the, the bigger the, the punch they pack. Oh, 100%. That ain't, that ain't a, that's not a coincidence. Right, right. It's got to be that much worse of a snake because it is small and essentially delicate. It's got to have the old razzle-dazzle to be able to knock them down and keep themselves safe. You know, and if you think about it, bush vipers – they're basically saw scales that live in trees. They're very mm-hmm. similar genetically. They're similar in appearance and build. I mean, they're they're essentially, uh, you know, just a tree echis. And uh, do you keep echis or no? I have. I've kept four or five species in the past. Um, He's got the boya fill. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I. I love all snakes, all types of snakes. Do I want to keep all types of snakes? No. Have I kept a lot of different types of snakes? Yeah. So, I mean, I would almost say just from because, I mean, I keep squams and echis. I want to say I want to tell people that saw scales are almost, in my personal opinion, almost easier to manipulate with a hook and quote unquote handle than some of the atheris. But I can't tell people, oh, it's a good first one to, to mess with because it's not because it's extremely unpredictable and super duper toxic. But yeah. but I almost just just remembering and like like thinking about like my squams and like how they're 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 dicks and they don't want to ride a hook and they bite at everything that moves, including each other. And like, I just don't see that as a first a good first one. You know what I mean? But the scenario that you presented with the girl that you sold one to where you had a particular animal that you raised up, you got it through the troublesome times, you knew it was healthy, you knew it was established and it was good for her to learn on. I think that's the perfect scenario. And like in that scenario, I would have no problem with it at all. But I feel like a lot of people, they don't go through the homework like she did. And the guy selling it doesn't necessarily have the the care and compassion that you do. And that's where things get messed up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's hard to say anything as a good first venomous because right. it's a venomous animal that can potentially disfigure or kill you, you know, and like dead is dead, you know, and losing a finger, no matter what kind of snake takes, it sucks. Um, so you have to have um it it has to be thought of in detail and taken seriously um i have i had a friend that i met and he wanted to get into snakes or he had snakes when i met him and then he wanted to get into venomous snakes um you know and it was his hobby um his profession involved his hands and like he has to has have his hands, you he's know. A hand so, model. <laughs> now he's a tattoo artist. 
And, uh, you know, so he started keeping for a while and he kept for several years and, you know, was a really good keeper and was doing really well. Well, you know, shit happens. And he accidentally got bit. He spent some time in the hospital and, you know, he pretty much, he didn't really lose any mobility, but he, you know, he, his thumb was a little tight in some movements, Mm -hmm. you know, but the whole experience of being in the hospital and his hand and arm swollen and all of those things was like a startling thing to him. And I had told him all along, I was like, you know, I do snakes full time every day, all day as my job. If I get bitten, it is a legitimate part of my job. And it's a legitimate, not not like part of my job, but it's like, it's a, it's a occupational it's a, hazard. It's a real risk of my job because that's what I do day in and day out is work mm-hmm. with venom snakes all day, every day. And for him, you know, getting bitten and having an injury from essentially your weekend hobby that could potentially, you know, make you lose the use of a hand and affect your livelihood, you know, like you have to really think about, is it worth it to do that? Is it worth it to take that risk? And, uh, you know, and ultimately he decided that it wasn't and he got out of venomous snakes and that's, you know, I, I didn't blame him or hold it to against him. It's like, I get it, man. It, it, there's a lot of risks in it. And I think a lot of people don't take that serious. They're like, oh, yeah. venomous, that sounds badass. I want a venomous snake. That'll be super cool. And I can tell everyone I got this super cool snake. And they want to do dumb stuff. You know, uh, once you've been in, once you're in a hospital bed, realizing, oh, shit, you know, then then people realize the severity. The trick yeah, is it doesn't doesn't click until you're you're in it. Yeah, yeah the, the trick is to go into it uh, seriously and understand that that is a real risk, and take it serious and act accordingly. You know, because getting bit. Yeah, really me and Phil talk about it all the time, like knowing yeah. your limits. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. and that and, was so well put, man. So well put. Getting bit is human error every time. It's preventable. It's foolish. It's not a requirement to keeping venomous snakes. It's not a badge of honor. A lot of dipshits get bit and then they think they're cool because they got bit. And it's like, no, it's a foolish mistake. And I, I've made them and I've been bitten and it's stupid. And I, every time it's happened, immediately after it happens, you're like, oh, shit. Damn it. Why did I do that? That was a terrible idea. And you feel super dumb and it's a pain in the butt and it super sucks. And, you know, so it's it's absolutely preventable. I know people that have worked venomous snakes for 25, 30 years and they've never been bitten. You know, so, um, yes, it's an it's a thing that does happen, but it doesn't have to happen. Be smart, be responsible. Yeah, it always it kills me when people are always like, oh, it's not a matter of if it's when I don't believe that at all. No, I disagree. It's not. I happening. disagree. Yeah. I think yeah. certain species you work with, uh, it's more likely to happen with certain things. Right. You know, with others, like some animals, uh, it's a little more prevalent. Uh, you know, 
Look at people that jack with tree vipers. Look at most people that have messed with a shitload of tree vipers have typically been whacked on the finger once or twice because you're always in there and you're always tease feeding and you're always messing with little babies and, you know, it's kind of like a numbers game with those types of snakes, it seems like. But, again, not a requirement. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, now I'm just curious. So which Deboya do you have? Because I didn't, I didn't know that you had that. Uh, I got Instagram. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm creeping them on Instagram right now as we're speaking. Nice. Yeah, I got, I got Russell's. I've, I've kept a few others in the past. I, I would like uh, Desert Eye, but I've had the old Mauritanica a long time ago um, before they were Deboya. And then yeah. I've had a few different Russell's. Nice. Yeah, the Pal- Palestinians are definitely on my list. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've had Palestinians, too. I forgot about that. Yeah. You got Jamaican boas. That's... Oh, God, I love my attention, man. I'm so freaking jealous. I'm super picky about what I keep. Like, oh, over, so the, over the years, I've kept a bunch of different species. And, uh, you know, people... <laughs> I always laugh when people are like, Oh, you just got squams, or you just... Oh, he breeds squams. And it's like, I mean, I bred like 20 species of venomous snakes. I don't brag about it, but I've bred a couple of things other than squams. And I've kept, you know, a lot of different species over the years mm-hmm. successfully. And, yeah, uh, and you got Ridley Eye and. Yeah. There's, I love all the Asian. I love rat snakes, you know, Asian rat snakes, American rat snakes. I freaking love bull snakes, you know, um, there's just little certain species that I either caught as kid as a kid or like saw in books as a kid, and uh, you know they just stuck with me. And Man, you're our kind of people, and like you're keeping all the same stuff that we obsess about every week. Yeah, li- li- literally, <laughs> it took the words out of my mouth, Justin. Yeah. Anymore, you know, I I learned that um, to really to really be successful with snakes you have to either have multiple rooms at different climates or you have to keep um, you can keep different species but they all have to kind of come from the same climate area. yeah there has to be like a, a baseline yeah, yeah. You know, i i loved vipera moni vipera macro vipera i had a bunch of different species of those but i'm like my room is never going to be ambient 70 degrees so I'm doing them a disservice, keeping them warmer. Sure, I can put them in a fridge for a couple months out of the year and cool them and get, uh, you know, babies occasionally, but it's not going to be consistent, you know. And so I just have, you know, uh, streamlined that pretty much everything I love and truly want to work with are arboreal species, and most of them – I don't really keep any of the montane arboreals, you know, because, again, they like it cooler. Yeah. Uh, everything I like kind of needs the same temps. You know, both my rooms stay 79 to 81 during the day, and both rooms, um, quarantine room stays 79 day in and day out. And then um, the my main room fluctuates and hits about 75 at night. But everything, you know, I probably have 30 different species in this room, mm-hmm. but they all, they all thrive off the same temperature requirements. So I just Yeah, kinda, they all kind of, 
they're borderline equatorial sort of operate like that same band, you know, globally, you know. Yeah, same kind of temps and requirements and humidity. You know, my rooms stay 50 to 60% 60 humidity um, day in and day out. That freaking Malabargus is so cool too, man. Oh, man, I love those snakes. And I mean, the Schultz eye, like when I saw that you got Schultz eye, dude, I was, I was losing my mind. Like that is one of the most beautiful snakes on the planet. And a lot of people don't even know they exist. Yeah. So those snakes. Phil, you're muted. I, uh, I, I just learned what they were probably five years ago. And then they popped up available and, you know. I bought them and a lot of crazy, rare, awesome stuff that's like never been here before has come up in the last couple of years. And, you know, I jump on them every chance I can, you know, like some of that stuff has never been here before and it may yeah. never come again. Right. The way they're trying to change all these laws and importation, you know, some of these snakes might never, ever be available again. You know, and so when they come up, you can't kick tires or him haw or talk to the wife. You, you got to do it. Got to buy them, you know. Yeah. And people ask me, like, how do you have all these crazy snakes? I spend a stupid amount of money on them the minute they're available. And I work my ass off on, you know, making sure they thrive and grow. And hopefully in the future, I'll be successful breeding them. And can offer them to other people, you know? Um, yeah. You gotta strike when the iron's hot. Yeah. Like, I, I just, you know, I don't know. I don't how know. does the, how does the Asian, Phil, you got a question to that? Yeah. I was, I was going to say is, is for, first of all, I didn't know how many Schultz that you had because your ones that you post are just literally the textbook gem specimens. Like everything that you'd expect to get out of that species. Boner inducing. Oh yeah, six to midnight, and <laughs> I've seen I've seen other Schultz side that you could tell that that's what they were, but they didn't look like yours, and yeah. like and and I regret you know Hen Dog is always talking about you know every Asian species imaginable because he's a Southeast Asia junkie, but like dude he fangirls over your Schultz side hardcore it's great, and uh, and like I thought about it but it's not my cup of tea and and like you were talking about the rooms being catered to a certain you know. Uh, uh, way of living and I don't know I just I think it's awesome sorry I'm, I'm rambling about cool snakes sorry uh, I love all the Asian pit vipers just the same um, I've I've only bred a handful of species um, of the Asians but I've I've been raising some up for quite a while and I'm raising these others and um, uh, I have a pair of them and they're two and change so I think another year or so, they should be ready to try to see what I can do with that. Um, I, I'll i be picking the brains of people that are more experienced than me. You know, um, there's a, a couple people here in the U.S. that are, you know, stupid skilled with arboreal Asian species. And I'll be hitting them up and asking them questions, you know, because that's how we learn and progress it's, you know, asking those that came before us. And uh, I've been very fortunate uh, in having some really nice animals offered to me before. 
and I jump on them when I get the chance. And, uh, you know, so I got the Schultz Eye and um, Malabars and Grimenius and Hansos and, you know, I'll, I'll do everything I can to give them the very best life and hopefully get offspring out of them. And, you know, we'll see. Um, you know, uh, yeah, all I can do is try. Mm-hmm. How does the, the Asian stuff compare in terms of like working with those compared to the atheris and, and uh they're more delicate for sure like so the pariahs the pariahs have a real uh delicate skin um so if you have ever had your hands on a willard eye they have a really delicate soft skin and it makes sense because where they're from is high humidity um, lots of moisture in the soil and grass and things like that. So they have this delicate skin. And then you think about your atrox that are scraggly, rough, you know, dry. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I would equate um, some of the pariahs in comparison to atheris. Atheris um, like it drier and hotter than more people understand and realize. And then these Asian species, like the pariahs, they like, you know, for me, I give them my room. They, they all run at ambient temps. They don't have any heat on them. And the high that they might reach is, say, 81. And I mist them once a week just to kind of keep moisture going on their skin. And then they have a big old water bowl that I fill about every four days so it stays nice and fresh. And they all drink and stay hydrated but they have a real delicate skin so you got to watch them drying out getting irritated in that sense um the sumatranas are also similar sumatranas kind of remind me of a wagglers in keeping in husbandry but not as delicate wagglers you know um they're easy but people will overcomplicate and kill them mm-hmm. sumatranas you know they're kind of delicate um, but again, if you get their husbandry right and leave them the hell alone, they don't stress. They eat consistently. They drink and shed, and they grow and do well. And uh, I have a pair of those that I've had for about two years that I've been raising up from babies. They're cool snakes. They're one that I uh, always loved. I remember as a kid seeing a big-ass four-foot black and green Sumatranus. You know, yeah, those are badass snakes, man. Yeah, I see them postured up on a branch in the rainforest, and you see pictures of that, and they just look so menacing and tough and beautiful. And, uh, and the Malcomai too. Oh yeah, yeah. Malcomai are badass. I like Macrolepis, the big scale guys. Ooh, those are probably my favorites out of that group. They're so funky. I wish they would be available. I'm sure in a couple of years there'll probably be some floating around. All that Indian stuff is is. Yeah, there was. They they got all the cool stuff, man. Yeah, I, uh, some, a couple years ago, or about a year and a half ago, I guess it was, uh, Graminius were available, only one pair, you know, and they look like plain little green snakes, but they're 2,500 a pair, and everyone's sleeping on them because nobody knows what the hell they are. Right. And I saw them, and I, you know, got all excited like a little girl and was like oh man shit i'll buy those and uh you know i got them and 
I don't post them a whole lot. Uh, I'm so excited to have them. They're so unique and beautiful. And watching the male go from that lime green to this stupid turquoise blue. Ah, so nice. They're so beautiful. So I'm super pumped to get to work with them. You know, those have never been in the U.S. before. And, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to uh, come to be offered those. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like the Malabars, that's another one. They're stupid beautiful. They're super variable. You know, their behavior in in the wild, chilling by water and swimming around like a cottonmouth that also trees you know super badass how can you not like that well that and the different colors those come in too you know like that, that oh, yeah. sea foam mint green you know the the whiter ones like like oh, you, it looks like you have and yeah mine's super light and i think it'll get more blue as it gets older i don't care what it as long as it grows and is healthy i don't care what color mm-hmm. it is i love I the giant get... heads on those too Oh, yeah, the big exaggerated head and that no, uh, ridge on the nose. You know, they're super badass. These, All these snakes that I have, you know, it, it's stuff that I dreamt of as a kid, you know, getting to keep and breed and, and you know, sell mm-hmm. and, like, have snakes as my job day in and day out is what I've dreamed of as a kid you know i dreamed of either working at a zoo or being some like famous snake person and like i've worked at a zoo and it was super badass and i did it for two years and now i do snakes full time on my own and it's like i'm living my dreams of what i've always wanted to do it's a shitload of work every day I, (laughs) i don't do anything with my life except snakes but I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm very fortunate to get to do it and be around these animals and interact with the cool people that I do. It's, uh, it's pretty awesome. So what's up with the, the striped squam? Where did that one uh, end up coming out from? So that came out of uh, an animal that was potentially het tiger so the only other striped squams that i knew that i know of there was two out of europe and they were like half striped partially striped Mm -hmm. and um they came out of a litter that involved tigers so it seems like the common denominator with the stripe is potentially tiger genetics so that's the only fully striped squam on the planet that I know of, mm-hmm. that I've heard of, and I've talked to a bunch of people. No one else has seen or had uh, one with a uniform whole stripe. Um, it was cool. I personally, it wasn't my favorite snake. I'm grateful that I made it. I'm grateful that I had it. Um, I sold that project off to a friend. Um, he really liked it, really wanted it. Mm-hmm. I got I got blacks I can work with and whites and tigers and I was like, you know, you can have this project and it might turn out to be a genetic thing and reproducible. It might be just a one of a kind unique squam that there's none others like it on the planet. I don't know. Here you go. You can raise it up. Raise it, raise yeah, it and see what happens. Yeah, it was a cool snake, and uh, you know, um, I was. 
it was a badass snake to produce. I'm glad it happened, but not really a direction I wanted to go with them personally. Yeah. Have you kept any other Bothriacus other than the uh, eyelashes? Nah, I've, um, no, no. I've just had eyelashes. And uh, hopefully I'll breed some. My uh, my buddy Tommy gives me shit. He's like, you can breed all this crazy rare stuff and breed the shit out of squams, but you can't breed eyelash. And because uh, I I got a, a super nice group from um, from Jim Campbell, and but for me, what for whatever reason, the male just didn't want to breed my girls, and I had it three years and tried, and he never wanted to do anything with my ladies. I sold him to a friend, and he knocked up, he hooked it up with one of his girls right away. Like, no, of course. Yeah, so I got another male that I've been raising up that should be ready in the spring, and a couple another male that I'm raising up. So hopefully, in the spring they'll do their business. So I got a pretty nice group of badass adults that I got from Jim Campbell, and then I have some other animals I'm raising up. So I should hopefully have some of those guys next year, and uh, you know, among some other species of trams. Every year. Another pair group, you know, hits maturity and there should be more stuff going on. It's, it's a process. A lot of people jump in brand new and just think they're going to start breeding the shit out of stuff overnight and being stupid successful. But it takes years. Anyone that's been doing it a while and successful has been invested in this, these things for literally years. You know? Got to have the, uh, the long, long game in mind. Yeah, and I never, <clears throat> I never understood like the people that just okay, you know what? On, a, on you know, January first, I decide I'm going to get into snakes, and then or well, a particular species, and then six months in, they buy a pair of adults and expect to breed that year. Like, you know, I feel like the passion in it, and the fun of it is 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 the slow grow, the raising them up, you know, working with them and gaining the knowledge and the wisdom of the particular species. And that's like, that's why we, we, we love watching everything you do, Alex, because like the passion is there. And like, you know, the, the, like, but Brent was talking about last week, the thirst for knowledge is there. And like, it just makes you a better keeper, better herper, you know, better human. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I, uh, you know, I don't know. I just freaking love snakes, man. I love snakes. I have since I was six years old, and man, I don't know what I would do if I wasn't. I don't know what I would be doing if I wasn't doing this. And there's nothing more satisfying than you know getting a tiny little baby and raising it up, and then having it make babies, and you know keeping that cycle going. It's pretty badass, in my opinion. With these beautiful animals. Absolutely. Yeah, very well put, man. Very well put. Well, we are at about we are at an hour and a half. Phil, did you have anything else you wanted to touch upon? Um, not really, man. I mean, we, we pretty much covered the the questions I had, the species that I that I wanted to to talk about. Um is there any is there any husbandry tips that you'd want to disclose for people that that want to get into arboreal venomous specifically and they don't necessarily want to get roped into you know uh, 
necessarily tubs or exoterras or whatever. Is there any like, you know, any tips you'd want to give out that, that most people don't think about outside the box, so to speak? Um, uh, <coughs> like, I mean, be- before, like, I mean, before the show, you and I were talking about the, the purple maculatus and like you had mentioned about, you know, stagnant water and smelling the water, like anything like that, that you might want to okay. touch base on. So, you know, a big, a big killer, a, a big, a way that people um, mess up with our, excuse me, with our boreal vipers is uh, too much humidity. You know, like humidity is crucial. It's crucial. But people go about it in the wrong way. They think these snakes, you know, like, okay. Uh, for instance, my Flavo maculatus, they're from the Philippines. It's probably 100% humidity there every day, all day, year round. You know, it might drop to like a cool 90% in the dry season. But like it's always humid there. But the snakes, you know, they don't, you don't need to spray them down. That ambient humidity in these tropical places, that's, uh, that humidity is ambient. It's in the air. It's not physical moisture. You know, people, you'll see someone post a picture of an insularis that's soaking wet, the enclosure soaking wet, you know, and you see a pattern of every picture, it's soaking wet like that. And like these snakes, they're not amphibians. They don't need to be wet 20% <laughs> like you're yeah. wrong. Like, you know, the way I start all of these arboreal babies for the first year when they're the most delicate and the most problematic is in a dry as a bone tub on paper towels. The, the crucial thing is the fresh water, you know, the ambient humidity, that little enclosed box, you know, holds humidity and holds temperature. So if you have a large water bowl in there, that's going to put um, humidity and moisture in the air. And, uh, you know, um, so with that, you don't have to mist. The only time I, I missed him, like maybe once a week, I will give him the littlest spritz that doesn't even get the paper towel soaking wet. Like the paper towel dries in five minutes because yeah. I spray so lightly. That's just a light little uh, mist to keep their skin, you know, um, hydrated. But the crucial thing is the water bowl. And like I was telling you, you know, the reason that our, we see snakes go straight to fresh water and drink right after you change it is because of the smell. They smell the fresh water. It's not like your snake watches you pour them a cold, fresh glass and they're like, oh, damn, that looks good. Let me go get a Finally, drink. Yeah. Yeah. I've been waiting for that, bro. They smell that fresh water. So, when you don't change that water and it sits there and gets that little film layer that masks the smell. If they can't smell that fresh water, they're not going to go drink. So then they're going to sit there and get dehydrated. And then you're, you know, you're, you have all sorts of problems. People see a snake have a bad shed and they're like, Oh shit, I need to soak it. And granted a soak helps you know, loose and dry, um, stuck skin, 100%. But 
But the reason that snake had a bad shed is because it's dehydrated. If that snake is hydrated and drinks that water, then its body and its skin creates that oil, which separates that outer layer of skin. And then the shed comes off in a uniform, soft, smooth piece. If they're not hydrated, those oils don't come out. And then their skin is dry and then it comes off patchy and they get stuck mm -hmm. shed. You know, so hydration is so crucial to everything. If a snake is dehydrated and, you know, um, feels like crap, it's not going to want to eat. If it's not going to eat, it's not going to have calories to burn, to have energy to move across the cage to go drink more or to shed or to go thermoregulate. So hydration is crucial to everything. You know, fresh water, fresh water, fresh water. You know, more so over than spraying the piss out of the snake all the time. You know, my squams, um, I might spray them, you know, when I'm running them through a dry season, I might spray them once every two weeks. I fill their water bowl and give them fresh water every week, and I'll dump water on the soil for the plants, and then that wet soil slowly dries and gives ambient humidity. But the snake itself sitting on a branch isn't actually wet, you know? Mm -hmm. And if you're gonna go the planted bio route, you have to have a layer of leaves because if you dump a bunch of water on the soil, it gets wet, you know? And if the snake doesn't have a layer of leaves, it's sitting on wet soil. What happens to anything if it's wet too long physically? gets blisters, bacteria, add heat, you know, to that wet soil and waste, and then you get bacteria. So that layer of leaves dries super quick, but allows all the soil under there to stay moist and wet and traps humidity, and then slowly dissipates ambient humidity, you know. <clears throat> so people kill the shit out of their arboreal vipers by keeping them too wet, spraying them, mm -hmm. not keeping them, you know, um, not warm enough. Or they set up a bioactive enclosure, but they don't put enough isopods and they don't continue to add isopods because those little dudes die, you know. And if you have wet dirt, you know, add some waste. Bacteria and, loves it. It's a petri yeah, dish. Add some heat, then you get bacteria. That's how our eyes are caused. Our eyes are caused from dirty conditions and bacteria breeding and then the snake's continually breathing that stuff in, you know. Um, so humidity is a tricky thing. It's crucial, but it's also real detrimental if done incorrectly. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's kind of all over the place, but that's no, that's stuff. that's exactly what I was looking for, man. That's awesome. I really yeah, I mean, appreciate that's, it. That's how I feel about chondros and keeping them in in you know bioactive area. Just to me, it just doesn't. They don't do that well in them. I mean, you can keep them in there. I just, I prefer to keep them much more simply. I, I fixed the hydration problem with oversized water bowls to pump up humidity and add some pothos clippings to the water bowl. And that helps out a lot too. But yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I think they just get, they get babied to death. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. People overcomplicate things. Um, snakes are so simple. They eat, they go to the bathroom, they reproduce. And, you know, I mean, obviously they have other natural behaviors that we see, but like they're super straightforward animals and we overcomplicate them and screw them up and we get in the way and 
the majority of the times that they die, don't eat, don't thrive. It's human error, you know. Um, the thing that I think part of the reason why my animals do really well is because I set them up and planted natural stuff and I leave them alone. I don't get them out. If you ever, if you look on my Instagram, you know, out of the 1,200 pictures, whatever, there's probably a handful of pictures of an adult in a tub. Otherwise, every picture is of that snake in an enclosure through glass, whatever. Like, I don't get them out for pictures. I don't get them out for funsies when people come over to visit. I don't touch them. I just moved like a month ago, and that I and I had to pull and deli up everything and move everything, and which was a freaking fiasco, by the way. But um, so, some of those snakes have, pro- have probably hadn't been touched with a hook in a year, two years. Wow. You know? And that's why they breed and do all these natural things is because I don't jack with them. To me, the, the satisfaction I get is seeing them reproduce, seeing them, you know, their routine of moving around the enclosure throughout the week, throughout the day, et cetera. You know, it's not getting them out and screwing with them. Um, so that's another way that I see people mess things up is by uh, messing with their animals too much. But I, I will say, since you mentioned that with the chondro people, like, I, I just don't understand. You have these stupid, beautiful snakes, and then they're in a clear box with paper towels or a pee pad on a piece of, piece of PVC. And that shit drives me crazy. I get it. It works. And they breed and it's consistent success and the animals thrive. And so I totally get it. Like, you know, I raise all the babies for the first year in the same kind of sterile setup that's ugly, Mm -hmm. but it works and it produces the best results and it produces the hardiest, strongest, strongest animal. So I get it as it's a tried and true method that is the best for the animal. But I just don't understand. <laughs> I see those beautiful snakes and I just want to see them in like this decked out, beautiful, doing the most piece of rainforest enclosure. Yeah. But like, yeah. All the guys that are the most successful don't do that. And it drives me crazy. But I don't, you know, it's not my area of expertise. So I am in no way to qualify to talk about it. And I won't. But, uh, you know, I have a yeah. friend who keeps green trees and. I'll talk shit to her about it because it's silly to me, but you know, I mean, it can be done. My thing is that it's just, it seems like it's, you're making things a lot more difficult on yourself when you're, right. when you're more, adding those things in and, you know, I they, get it. I get it. I, I totally get it. And I'm not knocking the system. I don't understand it, but you know, it's not my thing. So, you know, I, yeah. I, awesome. Okay. Yeah, man, I share your sentiment wholeheartedly. <laughs> so, where can people find you if they want to see all the cool stuff we talked about this evening? Um, I'd say probably uh, you can look on the gram or my Instagram. I uh, I post pictures of my kids and I here and there, but I like you know that my my page is just like. I just want people to look at it and be like, holy shit, look at all these smoking snakes. 
you know, I don't care how many followers I get. I'm not trying mission to accomplished. Yeah, I was gonna say, dude, that, that, <laughs> that's an easy cakewalk. <laughs> yeah. I I try to just I just want it to be beautiful snakes. You know, I love these snakes. Like I've said probably 17 times. So I like to share beautiful pictures with not a lot of roofy stuff. You know, sometimes I'll add a bit of a caption to something, but I try to keep it pretty straightforward so you can just scroll and see all kinds of wild colors and pictures of just beautiful snakes. And, uh, you know, I like it that it's pretty much just mostly my snakes and animals and no, no other bullshit. You know, you, you can find me on Facebook, and I post snake stuff on Facebook. It's a little more miscellaneous, more of my my kids and stuff on there, and things I'm doing with my life. Um, typically, that's where I post more things available. You know, I don't like post on King Snake or Fauna, mm-hmm. or I, I don't really po- put out lists i'm very fortunate and i have a pretty good following for people wanting my animals so when i i post pictures of stuff people usually text and uh, you know uh, so that works like that but you know yeah anyway facebook or instagram either one and the, the instagram is is rory's dad right yeah rory's dad 27 when i start i mean I was 27 years old when I started my Instagram and I didn't really have any clever, cool name. (laughs) So I was just like, my, my email is about the same thing. My Instagram, same thing. And I was just like, all right, Rory's dad, that's simple enough. And yeah, so Rory's dad, 27 is the Instagram where you can type in my name. It pops up with my name. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. It's a great show, man. We really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, dude. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. I appreciate the invite. You know, I told you I, I would do it. Um, this is only like I did one YouTube video for a friend a while back. I just have never really done much of these videos or podcasts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to do this with you guys and talk snakes and you know yeah i'll talk about tree snakes with anyone all day long <laughs> well yeah man it was definitely uh, long overdue and we appreciate you coming on man it's awesome yeah all right well thank you guys y'all have a good evening you too man thank you too all right bye thanks bye all right episode 126 Brought in to the you by, bag. Yes, in the bag. Brought to you by Steve Snakeshuary and MP Cages and Exotics. Please check them out. Um, Snakes and Stogies, number 82. 80, 82, yeah. 82. Happening Monday night at 9. I have no idea what we have planned. I don't know what Phil has planned. Phil likes well, to surprise me with things, and I like it. It's good. It's good. I keep just on his toes. I enjoy it. I like not knowing. Like, it's nice to be like, hey, we're having this person on. It's like, sweet. <laughs> and hey, so, uh, and then we're going to do uh, the stuff with Doc uh, Wyman 
the Thursday after, or we, is that? I don't to... know. We're still setting that up. So okay, it's cool. a new sort of organization that Pia and Travis Wyman, and I believe Dr. Lofman um, and some other folks are, are starting up that we were kind of wanting to talk to them about Yeah. Uh, on top of the pre Daytona preservation party happening Thursday, the weekend of Daytona. Yep. Um, We'll be there hanging out for a bit. It's going to be an auction coming up. Uh, it's going to be almost like a like a, a brony ales mixed with a carpet fest, mixed with you know just the it's it's a, a weird amalgamation of things. But yeah, it's going to be a good time. And yeah, Daytona is going to be awesome. Yep, good talks, good people, a good cause, good causes, plural. And uh, yeah, I'm stoked. So we will see you guys Monday. Same uh, snake time, same snake channel. Yes. Everyone have a good evening. Bye.